Well, if you have a Bible there with you, I'll invite you to turn to Psalm 43. That's our sermon passage this morning. And this is our custom. I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The sense of reading of God's word, you may be seated. The scripture says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask him to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the different parts of your word, for the different kinds of scriptures that you have within it, even within the Psalms itself, the great variety of kinds of Psalms that we come across as we read them and pray through them and even sing them. And we ask this morning that you would give us grace by your spirit, work in us by your spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a little while, but we're getting back into our our regular routine. Uh, Normally on the first Sunday of the month, we have the Lord's Supper, as you can see before you here. Uh, And normally on these Sundays, we've been going through the Psalms in order one at a time. And uh, we took a break from that last last month, but we are up to Psalm, uh, obviously Psalm 43. If you were if you weren't here with us last time, it would have been back in, in December when we looked at Psalm 42. You might you might not know that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are very very closely connected. In fact, if you were to sit there, you could do it very easily in one uh, just a short time and read through starting at Psalm 42. Uh, if you were to ignore the chapter divisions in your Bibles, the, the, psalm, the number of the psalm, uh, you could very easily think that 42 and 43 are in fact one psalm. Some of the same phrases and words are found in them, some of the same themes. In fact, many commentators believe this to be one psalm together. There are some versions of the Hebrew uh, scriptures that do, that do just that. They, they hold them as one psalm. I don't think that's necessary uh, to take it that way. I think you can look at the relatedness of the two psalms together without seeing them as somehow accidentally broken into two or something. Uh, very often we tend to mistakenly, I think, think of our of the book of Psalms, a kind of, uh, no disrespect meant to the book of Proverbs, which is also scripture, but sometimes we think of them as haphazardly thrown together. You know, that somebody somewhere, uh, you know, thousands of years ago got, got the, uh, the bingo hopper out. You know, the thing with the balls in it, you spin it, and they just kind of put them in order. Well, there, there's a structure to the Psalms, to the order of the Psalms. They're, they're where they are in the Psalter for a reason. Uh, there's a reason, as we saw last time, that Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. It, it introduces, in, in kind of a summary form, everything that is to come in the rest of the, of the book of Psalms. It's the entryway to the book of Psalms. There's a reason Psalm 2 comes right after that. I won't get into that all this morning, but uh, the connectedness, the commonality between Psalms 42 and 43 is a large reason of why they're consecutively together in 
in the Psalter. So uh, you, can, you can see the relatedness, the commonality between the two without necessarily taking them as one psalm. We're going we're gonna to deal with both in some ways as, it's, as we find it helpful to go through this psalm uh, this morning. But I want to spend most of our time on Psalm 43, not preaching Psalm 42 uh, in, place, in place of it so much. Uh, we're going to see from the psalm at least three things. The first thing that jumps out at you is probably the suffering of the downcast soul. This psalm is a psalm written by a downcast soul, just like Psalm 42 was as well. And the first thing that jumps out at us is the suffering of that downcast soul. The second thing we see, maybe throughout the whole psalm, is the prayer, the prayer of a downcast soul. How does he, what does he do? How does he respond to the suffering, to being this, this feeling of being cast off by the Lord? And the third thing we're going to see, and perhaps the most important thing, is hope. Hope for a downcast soul. What, where does the psalmist look when he feels downcast within his soul, when he feels the turmoil within his soul? What does he do? Why does he have the confidence even to pray as he does in this psalm? We're going to look at those three things this morning. So the suffering of a downcast soul, the prayer of a downcast soul, and the hope for a downcast soul. First, the first thing is the suffering of the downcast soul. The psalmist here, again, just like in the previous psalm, is undergoing some kind of affliction. We don't know exactly what it was. Sometimes it's actually helpful to not know all the details. It makes it sometimes it can make it harder for us to identify with it. You know, we we aren't. If this was David, as many think it was, that wrote this psalm, uh, we aren't kings. Not that I know of anybody in this room, myself obviously included. Um, we've probably never been exiled. Although there are many Christians in our day, even if not in our land, who have suffered exile. For their faith, they've had to leave their home, their homeland, their homes, and been cut off from their families, from their church family, and things. And they would readily identify with the psalmist in this psalm and the one previous to it. They would have no trouble reading Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 and saying, "I know exactly what he's saying. He was had enemies who cut him off from his homeland and from his family in the in the faith." We don't know who the enemies were that he speaks of in this psalm. We don't know what they were doing to David or the psalmist, whoever he may have been, that caused him to be cut off from the land, cut off from his people, even cut off from the house of God. In verse 1, if you look at our text, verse 1, what does he say? Vindicate me, the ESV puts it, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, Deliver me. You get the idea that somebody had been spreading, in some ways, false rumors or accusations against against the psalmist. Uh, he says, "Vindicate there." That that actually more simply could be translated as "judge." And that sounds like a strange thing. That sounds like a thing you'd never want to put on your lips. But the psalms put those words on our lips. He's really saying, "Judge me, O God, and defend my cause." A judge judge is really a neutral term. Uh, you know, if you if you are the plaintiff in a case, uh, the judge is not someone that you fear. The judge is somebody who you want, you hope that they'll find things ruling in your favor. If you're the defendant, it's another story. Well, the psalmist here comes as the plaintiff, as the one lodging the complaint with the court against his enemies, and he says to judge me, O God, because he knows God is not a liar. God judges justly. God's justice is perfect. And he asks him to judge his 
case, he's seeking vindication from his enemies, but he's seeking justice from God most of all. His conscience, in order for you to say, judge me, O God, your conscience must be what? Clear. Your conscience must be clear. Now, the psalmist is not saying, I'm sinless, therefore God judge me. He's not saying that, that at all. That would be insanity. He's not saying that he was sinlessly perfect. What he is saying is that he hadn't done whatever it was that he was either being accused of doing wrongly uh, or he hadn't done anything to bring on this ill treatment from his enemies. He's saying, I'm suffering at their hands, even under the providence of God, I'm suffering at their hands unjustly. That he didn't deserve whatever it was they were doing to him. And so, with a clear conscience, he was able and not afraid to ask the Lord to judge him and to defend his cause. Literally, that's contend my contention. It's a, it's a weird, weird uh, Hebrewism uh, way of, of putting it. And I have to say this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, you and I must learn to live with a clear conscience. Perfect. You don't need to be perfectly sinless to have a clear conscience. If that were the case, none of us could have a clear conscience. But you and I must strive by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit within us to hold to, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.19, to hold to faith in a good conscience. Faith being trusting in Christ as your salvation and a good conscience referring to your walk, your walk before the Lord in all sincerity and truth. If you don't walk with faith and a good conscience, it makes it very hard to pray. It makes it very hard to pray when times are tough or when you're suffering unjustly because you might not be suffering unjustly. The prayer at that point might need to be a prayer of, of repentance. So a clear conscience with our faith gives us boldness in, in prayer in time of suffer, suffering and affliction. First Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 20 to 21 the Apostle Peter writes something similar. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Then he says, for to this you have been called. For to this you've been called. What's he saying we're called to? To do, to do good and suffer for it. That at times that is something that, that we are called to do. And what's the reason for it? He adds in the next phrase. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we are called to suffering for doing good. And why is that? How do we know that's the case? He says because Christ also suffered for us. Christ, did, Christ is the ultimate person who suffered unjustly. He never once sinned. Who, who did he suffer for? You and I, if you were in Christ. And in suffering for us, he not only saved us, but he left us an example for us to walk in his steps. Paul says something similar. You can see a trend in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Philippians 1.29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but what? But also suffer for his sake. It's a weird way of putting it. Paul uses the language of it being a gift. So Peter says, hey Christian, you are called some, at, at some times in your lives to suffer for Christ, to follow in his footsteps and the example he has set before us. And, and Paul adds that it's a gift. 
God has granted it. He has given it to you. Not only to believe. Remember, your faith is a gift, as even Rob said this morning from Ephesians 2. It's been granted to you not only that you should believe in Christ, but that you should suffer for his sake. For the one who suffered for you and for me. In other words, it's suffering for his name's sake. But the worst part of the psalmist's suffering was not necessarily the oppression of the enemy, as bad as that may have been. And again, we don't know exactly what it was. But rather, the soul of the psalmist was once again, as in the previous psalm, downcast within him. You know, of all the things that you can bear up under in this life, uh, by God's grace through faith, uh, suffering against an enemy is one thing, uh, but to be to have your soul, it's one thing to say you are downcast. He says, my soul is downcast within me. He actually talks to his soul. He addresses his soul. In verse 5 he tells us, he writes, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, between Psalms 42 and 43, he repeats just about word for word that same exact uh, refrain three times. It kind of structures between the two, uh, these, these psalms. It's as if he's not just pleading with God, although he is. He's also kind of pleading with his own feelings, with his own soul, with his innermost self. He's saying, why? Why are you downcast? You are downcast. Why? What, what reason do you have to be downcast, oh, my, my soul? Have, have you ever felt, just felt, downcast? You ever felt spiritually downcast, down, down in the depths of your soul? Not just feeling a little bad, being downcast in, in your soul. Have you ever felt, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, that somehow the Lord has rejected you or cast you off? Not fully, not finally, but that he sort of turned his face away from you for a time. We do see that in the scriptures at times. That the God's people at, at, at times, Old Testament and New Testament, sometimes feel like God has kind of turned, turned his face away from them. Have you ever felt like that? Well, the good news is, part of the good news is, the psalmist felt that way too. In fact, he wrote two psalms at least, bare minimum, to describe it, to, to pray about it, to praise it. He, he felt that way enough that he wrote two psalms in our Psalter so that he could pray, so that he could worship in the midst of his trials, and not only that, but so that you and I could do so in the midst of our trials as well. It's why this psalm is in, it's why it's not just his diary. The psalmist could have written this in his own, you know, we, we use the word journal, his journal, his diary, kept it to himself, but God saw fit that this would be kept and preserved in his word for you and for I as well. And I have to say, aren't, aren't you glad this morning that God saw fit to put psalms like this one and the one before it in his holy word? That the whole Psalter is not just a bunch of happy, clappy songs. Every psalm isn't written just for happy times and happy tones for happy people with happy hearts. A lot of them are. Most of them are not. It would take a while for you to read through the entire Psalter, but I dare say if you were to try to do that, make that your reading this month, read through them. Uh, this is not a rarity. The lament is a common, maybe arguably the most common form of psalm 
in the Psalter, and that really shouldn't surprise us. There are many reasons for that. One of the main reasons for that is you and I aren't home yet. We're not cut off from the worship of God's people here on this earth, as is evidenced by us all sitting here this morning, as the psalmist even was. He was cut off from the worship of God's people in God's house for a time. That was discouraging. We don't have that problem. But as good as this is, this is not our home. This is practice. This is kind of practice. This is the warm-up. Uh, this is the, the rehearsal dinner for the main supper, for the main uh, supper after, after the wedding. So aren't you glad that God has included this kind of a psalm multiple times in, in his word? Aren't you relieved to know that there are still psalms for you to read and to pray and to meditate upon and even to sing in worshiping the Lord when you are downcast, when your soul is downcast? When your soul is downcast, uh, we don't just not worship the Lord. We don't say, well, you know, I'm not really feeling up to it. I'm having a bad day. Therefore, we're tempted to think that way, aren't we? I'll come back when I'm happier. I'll come back when I'm in a better mood, when things are going better for me. No, you can worship God no matter what your circumstance. When you think of the, of the book of Job, when all those terrible things happened to him, that God allowed permitted the hand of Satan against him. At one point, after all these things happened, it says Job worshipped. It's an amazing verse. Prayed, I get. Cried out, I get. And granted, worship, those are parts of worship. But he worshipped the Lord. At one point he said, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, the old King James uh, language of it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in spite of all that, God's name is to be blessed. There are psalms for sighing times as well as for singing times. In fact, there are quite a few of them, which is good for us because we have quite a few sighing times in this world of, of tears, this world of sin and misery. We have many happy times. Thank God for those joys and those happy things. But we have ways to worship even when we don't feel that way. Just like in the previous psalm, the psalmist's affliction again involves him being at least for a time cut off from the worship of the Lord's people at the Lord's house. Back in Psalm 42 verses 1 to 2, very familiar refrain, he says, As the deer, or as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, my, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, how do you know that, that, that he's talking about the public worship of the Lord with the Lord's people? Uh, he says, you know, when shall I come and appear before God there in verse 2? But look at verse 4 of Psalm 42. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. What are those things? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to where? The house of God or the tabernacles, the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's not experiencing that right now when he wrote Psalm 42 or Psalm 43. He's, even as he's praying and he's pouring out his soul to God uh, about his being downcast, he's remembering for and he's longing for those days when he was able to worship the Lord with the Lord's people at the Lord's house. By God's grace, he was able at the time to lead the procession 
to God's house with glad shouts and songs of praise, and he missed that. So when you read verse 1, there's a, there's a praise song that goes by that about as the deer pants uh, for the water, you know, so my soul longeth after thee. When you read those words, those are the words of a man who's been cut off from those things, cut off from the ordinances and worship of God, and he longs for that again. And the psalmist has a thirst for worship, both in Psalm 42 and 43, because he has a thirst for God. He connects those two things together. They're not, they're not radically separate things. He thought of God's presence when he thought of God's worship with the Lord's people at the Lord's house. And so I asked this morning, do you feel that way about the Lord? The Lord first and foremost. Do you feel that way about gathering with the Lord's people on his day in his house? Is Sunday the best day of the week to you? Not just the one where the certain game is being played. Uh, I, I hear sometime uh, today, uh, which is not being played at the Lord's house, by the way. Does, does your heart echo the words of David in Psalm 122.1 where he says, I was glad when they said to me, what? Let us go to the house of the Lord. I get to go to the house of the Lord on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. Now, perhaps if you and I delighted in the Lord himself more, uh, we wouldn't be so enticed by the entertainment that so often is disguised as worship in our day. The Lord himself, I dare say, the Lord is not boring. The one true and living God is not boring. The word of God is not boring to his people. The ordinances of God, including the preaching of his word, prayer, the sacraments, are not boring. If we find the worship of the one true and living God somehow boring, the thing that needs to be changed is not our order of worship, but the order of our hearts. The problem isn't with the worship or the ordinances. The problem is with us. It's somehow fitting. Maybe it's ironic to be dealing with this topic on this particular Sunday. I, I'm well aware of that. Well, this leads to the second point uh, that we see in our text, and that's really the whole psalm in some ways, and it's the prayer the prayer of a downcast soul. What does the psalmist do when he feels that way? When he feels as if God has rejected him, what does he do? Well, he prays. He prays. Now, we already saw that in verse 1. What is he doing? He says, God, you know, vindicate me or judge me, O God. Plead my case. He's already praying to God. Most of this psalm is written, addressed to God, all but verse 5. Verse 5 is addressed to himself. But most of it's addressed to God as a prayer and as a song for us to sing as well. But most of his prayer is found in verses 3 to 4. He writes there, he says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go where? Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So in verse 2, the psalmist tells us, and he tells God in his prayer, that he felt that he had been rejected by God, or cast off by God. And then he went about mourning because of the oppression of his enemies. But notice what the psalmist does here in response. You know, it would be easy, follow the logic, it would be easy for you and I to say, when you're feeling that way, I feel like I've been rejected by God, he's turned his face from me. So you want to return the favor. You know, the last thing you want to do is turn to God in prayer. It's not what the psalmist does, and it's not what the psalmist would have you and I do. It's not what the Lord would have us to do. 
it's counterintuitive. You know, if somebody's mad at you, what do you want to do? Well, you know, now we're not saying God is mad at you, but when you feel that way, right? Well, the psalmist would have us do the exact opposite of what we might be inclined to do. He wants us to pray. He cries out to God in prayer, even says things that, I mean, he's honest with God. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't try to, you know, kind of paint them over with a happy face. He lets God know exactly what God already knows, the way he feels about his circumstances. And the psalmist pleads with God to plead his case, to vindicate him against his enemies. He tells him he takes his refuge first and foremost in God in verse 2, and yet he felt rejected by him. Here in verses 3 to 4, he pleads with God to send out his light and his truth. And with what result? To lead him back to his holy hill, even to the dwelling or the tabernacles of God. Verse 3, the psalmist wants most of all, out of all the things he's asking, he wants vindication, he wants justice, but what's the main reason he wants those things? He wants to go back to the house of God. He wants to be free to go back to the house of his God And he calls God himself his exceeding joy. Why does he want to go to worship? Because there's something magical about worship in and of itself. The actual forms and things we do. No, it's because those things are are for God. His exceeding joy wasn't in the things. It wasn't in the, the, the altar itself as if it had some kind of magical power. His exceeding joy was God himself. Those things were the way that he approached God himself. Why, why was it the psalmist exceeding joy? Why did he want to go back to the altar? He mentions the altar. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. What's the altar? It's a place of sacrifice. Why would a place of sacrifice remind the psalmist and remind us of God as an exceeding joy? Kind of hints at the table that we're going to celebrate this morning. The altar was a place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice means that your sins are atoned for. In other words, it speaks of forgiveness. When the psalmist thought of the altar, he thought of forgiveness. Actual forgiveness, where his, his sins were wiped clean. Now, the altar in the Old Testament, those, the blood of those bulls and goats, never took away sins, but they pointed forward to the one who did, didn't they? They pointed forward to what this points back to, the death of Christ, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, for our sins and for our our salvation. When you're downcast, what do you do? Do you pray? Do you cry out to God honestly in prayer? Does does it cause you to turn away from God or to cry out to God even more? Does the suffering cause you to want to worship God less or more? By God's grace, I hope it, it, turn, it, it causes you to want to be with him more, not less. If you're a believer in Christ this morning and you're downcast because you feel somehow like God has turned his back on you or cast you off or rejected you, let that drive you even more to seeking his face in prayer and to seeking his face in worship. That's what the psalmist would have us to do. Pray as the psalmist does here in this short psalm, that God might send out his light and his truth so that you may see and understand things clearly, that you might be brought back to the Lord's house in worship. When we are downcast, we need worship more, not less. And why is that? Because we need God more and not less. 
Maybe sometimes God sends those things into our lives to teach us that very thing. To, to wean us away from the other things in this world, in this life, that would, that would hold on to us and hold our affections too strongly and wants us to turn back again once again to him. Well, that brings us to our last point. I've already kind of hinted about it, and that is, most importantly, hope. What's the hope for the downcast soul in Christ? He concludes that psalm again in verse 5 with that same refrain he said twice in the previous psalm. He says, why are you down? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What's he doing there? He's taking comfort in the steadfast love and faithfulness of his God. And so he exhorts himself and also us to hope in Now, the word hope there can also be translated wait. Those two things are related. When you hope, you're by, by definition, you're waiting. What does Hebrews say? You know, we don't hope for something we already have. I don't hope I have a Bible. I have a Bible. But he hopes. His hope is in God. He hopes for what he doesn't yet see or experience in this life. But he tells himself to hope in or wait for God to at last deliver him from his present circumstances from his present suffering and to enable him to be able to return to the house of God and sing praise to the God of his salvation. Now this Sunday is a communion Sunday again, as you see in front of you. The, 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 uh, you don't see the bread in the cup yet, but it's covered, but you see it there in front of you. So it, it's, it's all the more fitting that you and I meditate upon this psalm, this great psalm of, of we thank David as we prepare for the partaking of the Lord's Supper together. You know, in this, in this life, I dare say that, it, I, I don't need to, to convince you of this, but you and I experience many things, many kinds of different things. You know, whether it be illness, uh, trouble at, at home, uh, loss of loved ones, uh, loss of employment, whatever it may be, all kinds of things, you know what these things all are. But we experience a lot of things in this life that might tempt you to despair. That might tempt you to think that somehow... God has turned his back on me. Somehow God has rejected me, rejected us. And what does the Lord's Supper say to us at those times? What does the Lord's Supper assure us of? The Lord's Supper assures us, this is the wording we often use, it assures us, or rather Christ through it assures us, of our interest in Christ and his forgiveness and our salvation in him. And of his steadfast love towards us, the steadfast love of God to us in Jesus Christ. Commenting on, on verse 4, the part about the, the altar, Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, With what exaltation should believers draw near unto Christ, who is the antitype of the altar? In other words, he's the thing. He himself is what that altar in the Old Testament pointed forward to. That's what an antitype is. You have a type, that's the altar, the lambs, the, the blood of bulls and goats, and you have the antitype, the thing that it was all meant to point to in the first place. With what exaltation should believers draw near unto Christ, who is the antitype of the altar? Clearer light, that's what you and I have. Clearer light should give greater intensity of desire unto God my exceeding joy. It was not the altar as such that the psalmist cared for. He was no believer in the heathenism of ritualism. His soul desired spiritual fellowship, fellowship with God himself in very deed. 
And we should be the same way, even with this table. It's not the doing of the thing. We don't just go through a motion and somehow, as if you're putting you know, coins in a, in a Coke machine to get something out, you put the coin in, you get the Coke out. It's not a mechanical process. It's not a magical thing. It's not a heathen ritual. Uh, we are to look to Christ by faith in taking the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And one of the main things the Supper is meant to do is to, is to give us assurance of Christ's great love for us. And we call it communion for a reason. We call it a lot of things, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion. But you're communing with whom at this table? First and foremost, Christ himself, the risen and ascended Christ himself, and secondarily, although not less importantly, with one another. Communion with Christ and with his body. Since the death and resurrection of Christ, we no longer worship at an altar. We worship at a table. There's a big difference between those two things. We participate not in a sacrifice, which is what you use an altar for, since Christ has died once for all for our salvation. Read Hebrews chapter 10 for that. But we said we participate this morning in a sacrificial meal. Not a sacrifice, but a sacrificial meal. And so you and I are spiritually nourished and fed for our pilgrimage through this life, through this veil of tears, as we feed on the body and blood of Christ how? Spiritually and by faith. We don't physically partake of the, of the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's bread, it's, it's wine or juice. We feed on Christ really, but spiritually, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith. By hope, in some ways you could say too. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together, as we're going to do in a, in a little while, we celebrate communion with the risen and ascended Jesus Christ, we, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:26, we often say, we often quote this, every time we take this, we eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You proclaim the Lord's death, how long? Until he comes. How long are we going to need this? Until he comes. What's the main message? His death. His death, not just in some general vague sense, his death for our sins. His resurrection even for our justification. By faith we feed on his body and blood spiritually, which was broken and poured out for us for our sins. We are reminded again at this table, as we always should never, we should never lose sight of the fact that, that Jesus was cast off by his Father on the cross so that you and I might know that in, in him we are never cast off. We may feel cast off. God may sort of turn his face away for a time, but he never actually stops watching over you. You're never actually cut off from the Father because Christ was cut off in your place if you were in Christ by faith. Because of Christ and his death and resurrection on our behalf, when we are downcast, we too can say with the psalmist, no matter what we're going through at this time, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In, in Christ alone there is hope for the most downcast of souls. In Christ we can hope in God and have good reason for that hope, trusting that in Christ we will once again praise him, for he in Christ is our salvation and our God. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even, even these short, a short psalm like this where we can sometimes recognize ourselves, 
our situation, the cry of our own souls as we pour out our soul to you. We thank you that we can worship you no matter what we're going through in this life, for good or for ill. And we thank you that we can take these words of the psalmist that you have given for our benefit in worship, in praise, in prayer. And we can, we can even say to ourselves when we're downcast, why, why are you downcast within me, O soul? Why, why are we doing this? We can, we can say these things with confidence, knowing that because of what you, you sent your son to die for our sins, to rise again on the third day for our justification, we can have confidence that you never cast us off, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you for this table that is a sign and seal of that very thing that you give to us because you know, even from week to week, our weakness, our temptations to despair and to being despondent and downcast. And that you give this for our, our spiritual strengthening, for our growth in your grace, that we might understand and be more and more assured of your great love for us. And we ask that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you through faith in Christ, that you might even turn them to him this morning, open their eyes, grant them repentance and faith in him, and salvation and exceeding joy at the forgiveness of their sins even today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.